It's time for another episode of the Journey to Diagnosis series, Diagnostic Stories and Struggles from Autoimmune Encephalitis Patients. On this episode, HESA Executive Director Susan Foley interviews Nicola Nelson, who has a form of autoimmune encephalitis called Hashimoto's encephalopathy. My name is Susan Foley, co-founder and executive director of HESA. It's a nonprofit for, that was formed to create awareness and research and support for people with Hashimoto's encephalitis, which is a form of autoimmune encephalitis. I'm excited to be interviewing Nick Nelson. She is the other co-founder of HESA. Um, her and I have been through this journey together for 10 years. She was diagnosed the same time I was actually, and found our each other rather difficultly because there was nobody else diagnosed that we could find. And my reason for being so excited to interview her, um, Nick has served as executive director for many years before I became one. And she was on the board of directors for quite a few years after that. So onward with the interview. Hi, Nick. I'm so excited to sit down with you today to discuss your journey with this form of autoimmune encephalitis. You and I have such a history together, forming HESA and writing the books. We have been together through this thick and thin. <laughs> Indeed, we have. Yeah, we sure have. Um, I'll start with asking you, how old were you when you were first diagnosed with HE? So um, I was uh, 54 and a half when I got sick and yeah, so. That's so young, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was, uh, I had a career and, you know, a lot of things going on in life and suddenly, bam. And you were an attorney, correct? Yes, I was. I was indeed. And I was at work one day at my desk in the office. And uh, suddenly I had what uh, those of us in the HE community call stroke-like episodes. So I had a stroke-like episode, never had had anything uh, quite like that before. And so they took me to the hospital and uh, initially thought it was a stroke. And but that was the last day I ever worked. Amazing. I mean, that's just so sad. Um, I'm sure you worked hard to become an attorney. That's not an easy thing to become. So <laughs> had to be kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I loved my career. I love, I still love the law. Um, but you know what? Sometimes things happen in life and uh, we have to change direction, don't get a choice when this is one of those cases. Yeah. And you have done other things to um, make you feel good about yourself. I know that with um, creating HESA and helping people out through that door, as we say. So, yeah, indeed. And, and uh, of course, as you remember, we met when we first met, there was no HESA. We met through a a global encephalitis online community. And um, that was such a lifeline when I met you because I just never 
I, 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 it, it astonished me that this, ex, what I then referred to as an exceedingly rare condition, how did I somehow come across somebody else with the same condition on this website? But I did. Nick, I have to tell the story. I remember distinctively when I met you. I was in Green Bay in a hotel room waiting for more tests. Um, I was They were doing something or I was getting the ster- steroid infusions maybe at that time. And I was online trying to find somebody, a group with one person in it even, just one person that I could talk to about HE. And I was on Ansphalitis group and I was like, oh my gosh, there's somebody on here that actually was diagnosed with it. So you became my lifeline because it was like nobody else. I couldn't find no one. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, what a, what a wonderful um, coincidence that was. <laughs> I don't really sure believe was. in coincidences per se. So it sure was. We were, I think we were meant to be brought together so we could do some good work. I believe that with all my heart. You know I do. We've talked about that many times. Um, you know, what kind of symptoms did you get besides the stroke-like symptoms when you first got sick? Well, um, in some ways, my story is a little different than uh, many people in that I had, well... I'll back up. Uh, it was February 2011 when I had that uh, episode at work. But for about six weeks before that, I had begun to have some odd issues with concentration. And I even, in my office, all of us, I was part of a national law firm and we all kept our doors open during the day unless we were meeting with someone or whatever. But I started keeping my door closed and I put a notice on the door saying, yeah, just uh, doors just closed for distraction purposes. Feel free to come in. Um, so I started having problems with controlling distractions and being able to continue to think. Um And then uh, really from the day I had that stroke-like episode, I had really profound speech problems. That was one of my biggest issues uh, from the beginning. I just could not put together a sentence. I mean, my sentences were scrambled and sometimes my speech was just garbled. I would think I was gonna say a particular sentence, but all that would come out would be these sounds, syllables, random. Um, Anyway, so my my speech was a big problem from really from the day that I had that first episode. Um, And then uh, severe memory problems, um, which I still have transient um, amnesia. So some days I do not form any memories So, and sometimes I just lose, you know, a few minutes or an hour, but sometimes I lose long periods of time, which is still a problem for me. Um, So yeah, memory, um, 
balance. My balance got terrible. My judgment was got so bad. Uh, I just I did things that didn't make any sense, really. I mean, um, I sometimes tell the story about uh, we had a, um, a fireplace in the house we were living in at that time. And one day I wanted to go out and split some wood for the fireplace. So I went in the garage and proceeded to do this barefoot in the dead of winter on a concrete floor, which, you know, that kind of says it all right there. Um, so yeah, my judgment, I just didn't have a, any, I didn't have good sense. If you could, you know, maybe that's a way to put it. Um, so I guess, yeah, that, the memory. Oh, and myoclonus. I've had a lot of trouble with myoclonus and I was having a lot of myoclonus then. And in fact, it that caused so much trouble with my sleep that I never could get good rest while that was going on. So that was another issue. And then I went from being sleeping, you know, 20 hours a day to being unable to sleep at all back and forth. Uh, so sleep issues, I guess those were my main symptoms. Did you have headaches, Nick? Oh, yes. Sorry. How well, could I forget? <laughs> How could I forget the headaches? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. I, I, I sure did. And I can remember feeling things like, and, and I've talked to other AG patients who've experienced the same thing. I would feel like my like someone had been brushing my hair with a wire brush. My, I mean, like a, a wire brush, like you'd use in a garage to clean metal parts. I mean, it, my scalp would hurt so badly. I just, uh, and odd pains and odd trouble with moving certain limbs at times. You know, this is back in the beginning, especially it was very, I had a lot of movement trouble. Yeah, I can relate <laughs> to all of the above. And uh, do you still get that feeling on your head once in a while? I know I do. Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I had it the other night and I was saying to my husband, ah, oh, I hate this. It feels like when I first got sick. Um, now it's gotten better. I, I had about two days, you know, like within the last week where it was like that. And, and then I don't even want to brush my hair because it just hurts to even brush my hair. I, it hurts to touch my head. I remember thinking sometimes it felt like somebody had a rubber band in my hair, a ponytail so tight that my yes. scalp felt like it was being stretched. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. know how to explain it, but that's how it felt. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a good description. It was awful. I have to tell you. Um, so you had sort of the typical, I hate to say it, HE symptoms in the beginning. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, right. How long did it take for you to be diagnosed, Nick? Well, let's see. Um, from the day I was first seen for these symptoms, until the day I had a tentative diagnosis was about four months. That's long enough. Yeah. 
I mean, yes, not, <laughs> more than enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get some permanent brain damage done after that long. Right. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, and, and one of my neurologists does think that I had some damage uh, to the brain, which could explain my um, ongoing problems with transient amnesia. That's just sad. I mean, hopefully now they they can come to a conclusion much quicker than that. Um, to trying to diagnose people since there's so much more information out there, but um, right. I know there's people still have issues with that, and uh, it's sad because they shouldn't, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now of course at least there are some. Uh, recommended protocols, which didn't exist back then uh, for how to approach someone with this. Because even once I had the diagnosis, then by the time I was diagnosed, I was uh, down at a university hospital and I had a team of doctors and they were very split on what should be done and, you know, what, how to proceed with treatment. So, and I think now that would be much less of a of a problem, but that was 11 years ago. So yeah, there, there definitely is a protocol note that they follow. So thank God. Right. I mean, yeah, a lot less people getting any permanent damage done. Um, Did you find yourself worsening during this period that you were waiting for this diagnosis and some kind of a treatment? Uh, yeah, actually, I was worsening, and I was having more and more seizures, and um, um, yeah, and my mental state got pretty bad. So between the disruption of the mental state that often goes along with HE, and the stress of not knowing, you know, what's wrong with me. Um, am I, am I dying, <laughs> you know, or what, what's going on? Um, so I think the stress, as we know, stress, uh, makes all autoimmune conditions worse. So the stress of, during that time of not knowing and having some doctors just be so ignorant, uh, and, and having to deal with them and being, I mean, I couldn't even in the beginning, I couldn't put a sentence together. So it was pretty hard for me to even go through a, an exam and talking to them because I, it was really hard to talk. So I would write things out before I would go in so that I wouldn't be just like a stammering, I don't know, child or something. I, yeah, I know exactly. Cause how, when you have some kind of a brain disease, how do you go into a neurologist? They're all in a hurry. And you know, you're like, you're like I am, I'm assuming it takes us time to form the questions in our head to speak and you're being rushed and you don't remember half of what you wanted to ask or to tell them what's happening. You leave and you could just scream or kick yourself because you didn't get half of it out. Yeah, right. And sometimes, you know, uh, for me, well, and this is still the case, if I have a 
list of things that I want to make sure I say or ask about or inform the physician about, um, I've got to write them down I, I, because I will, I, my memory is so unreliable now. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, you're in your 60s. Yeah, you know, your memory slips a little. Yeah, well, this was in my 50s. And no, that was not it. Because I went from being a high functioning attorney one day to I can't remember anything the next. So. That's not the same. I agree with you 100%. I always get that comment too. I can't remember things either. Well, okay, well, <laughs> There's just a little bit of difference. <laughs> yeah, well, and I know a lot of times it's people wanting to sympathize, but you know, it's yeah, it's it, hard when you're living with profound impairment of memory. So, and you have for ten years, so right. it's right. like an ongoing process. Um, did you have any idea? what they were going to diagnose you with? Did you have any clue at all? Were you shocked when they came out with that HE diagnosis? Well, you know, what's funny is um, I was, as I mentioned, my, um, my thinking was very, very confused at that time. And although my job had entailed research, lots of research all the time, I was really good researcher but I was not competent to do any kind of even basic research at that time. My daughter, however, works in the medical field. She's not a doctor. She's not a nurse, but she's a medical professional. And she did some digging around online and she was actually the first person to think, you know, I wonder if it's this, you know? And uh, so she's the one that actually brought that up onto the radar for our family anyway. So in some ways, no, I wasn't surprised because um, it confirmed what she had suspected. Oh, that's amazing that you had somebody to do that for you and have some kind of an idea or something to push the doctors maybe to look at, right? I mean, well, she, she, you know, she didn't do that because interestingly enough, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how, uh, how I ended up getting off the treadmill of no progress and onto the path toward a diagnosis and recovery, um, such as it has been. And I was uh, initially, I got hospitalized a couple of times in the town where I was living at the time, uh, which is not a large town, but you know, a decent sized town. And um, the either the second or the third time, I, I guess it may have been the third hospitalization, they were going to uh, just release me and send me home in spite of the fact that I was incredibly impaired um, because the neurologist had given up. He'd thrown up his hands and said, well, I, I don't I don't know. It, I can't figure out what this is. Well, he didn't say that. What he said was uh, none of the tests show anything. So, you know, you just need to find a good psychiatrist. Ugh. And my daughter was, she kind of blew a gasket on that and said, there is no way you're sending my mom home. This is not going to happen. We need a second opinion here. And so the hospital did bring another neurologist in. He looked at me, talked to me for 15 minutes, ordered a blood test for antibodies for thyroid. And, you know, this is 15 minutes after he met me. Now, the other guy's been treating me for months, right? But 15 minutes and he says, let's do this. Comes back, I 
with the high antibodies and he had me transferred down to a university hospital. So um, I don't remember how I got off on this tangent, but uh, that's <laughs> how I ended up. And that's where I was diagnosed. You know, that's where they had the expertise and the knowledge and the inquisitiveness to follow up and figure out, oh, okay, so these antibodies are high. Is there anything else going on, et cetera? And that was... Actually, I had somewhat of the same experience. I had a really great neurologist, but she told me she wanted to send me for a second opinion and um, mail, but my insurance wouldn't be covered. So I ended up in Chicago at uh, the university hospital there. And the neurologist I was talking to, they did a TPO, they did the antibody test and it came back very high. And he said to me, I think it has something to do with this. Um, I came back to my neurologist and brought those results and she did her own tests and immediately she knew what I had, but that was after nine months. Yeah. So, I mean, but I felt fortunate. <laughs> well, when you finally get that diagnosis, it is such a relief to know what you're dealing with, you know, uh, even though when you and I were diagnosed and it's funny because we were both diagnosed very close to the same time. Um, back then you got the diagnosis and then what, <laughs> What I kept saying, what I could find online was 600 people in the world have only ever had this. And, and I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> strike the lottery on rare diseases. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I think we've have the, we have broken the lottery on autoimmune diseases itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I, oh, boy, um, Nick, how many doctors do you think you went through? to get this diagnosis, any idea? Well, let's see, um, I had my original neurologist uh, and then uh, then I had the second opinion guy <laughs> and then I had a team of, I think it was maybe around six people, six physicians, uh, I think it was six uh, when I was at the university hospital and um, and that's where I was diagnosed. So, and I did also take the trip to Mayo at one point, but that was a very unfortunate experience since I didn't see the only two guys up there that knew about this stuff at the time. I saw someone who was elderly and close to retirement, actually probably maybe needed to be retired before he saw me, but <laughs> anyway, that was not a helpful experience for me. I remember that experience for you, and it was traumatic. It was very traumatic because I had already been treated with high-dose steroids, which had brought me back to, you know, a not, not my prior self, but close. I mean, I could, for a, while I was on the IV steroids, I was able to talk and walk and do all kinds of amazing things. <laughs> You were functional again. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I was. I was like a like a grown up again. Well, I know that. Uh, first of all, I'm going to ask you. I'm not going to answer the question for you. What did he diagnose you with? That doctor, the one at Mayo. Yeah. 
Oh, oh, he said this is, uh, I'm quite sure this is functional psychiatric. And, you know, we've got some very good psychiatric programs and, you know, that's what you need. Um, <laughs> which was very frustrating for me. And my family doctor, who is a super smart guy, um, he was kind of beside himself and when he saw me after my visit to Mayo, he just shook his head and said, I, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you went up there. <laughs> and how many times have you heard the same story, Nick? Oh, count. I, there's endless, endless, pretty much, I think all of us who, I mean, it may have, be changing now. I suspect it may be changing now, but back then, you know, no one, there was a lot of question of whether HE even existed, whether autoimmune encephalitis existed, or whether this was just an imaginary disease. Um, yeah. That's where the frustration really comes in because you're diagnosed with something and you have other doctors questioning whether it's even legit. So it's pretty hard to even get serious, you know, thinking about it. Cause you're in back of your head. You're like, well, am I making it up <laughs> or am I really sick? <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's just, uh, the frustration, uh, that that causes certainly that it caused me of having no, um, no information. Um, you know, once I had gone through the IV steroids and, and they had seen the dramatic improvement and, you know, I mean, it was, they were, they were pretty smart at the, that university hospital. They did a good job of doing, um, establishing, um, basically through neuropsych type testing, you know, what, what I was like when I got there and then what I was like after the IV steroids. And it was just a, an astonishing difference. Well, the other thing that happened to me that the IV steroids took away was I had become hyper reflexive. And I know that's another thing that happens to a lot of us um, with AE. Um, I mean, just a noise or a noise from another room could make me just jump up, you know, like my body would just fly up or heaven forbid when they would do the um, reflex tests because they would check my reflexes and I would have, I'd go into a, you know, a series of convulsions. Um, and once again, I don't remember how I got off on that tangent. <laughs> It's okay. That's what we're all about here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You're right. giving information. That's what counts. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just such a weird disease in itself and, and trying to get somebody to give you a correct diagnosis. And then you have somebody giving you a different diagnosis. Then you go back and you get the same diagnosis. It's like, okay, what's going on yeah. here? <laughs> right. Right. And I, you know, um, I do credit the people at University Hospital for having arrested the progression because I was in really bad 
a really bad way when I got transported there. Um, I was I was very sick and um, very impaired. And uh, they they brought me around. And even though I did have other bad experiences with some specialists afterwards, I did finally wind up finding a wonderful neurologist uh, who I have profound respect for and uh, still have my same family doctor who's been with me. He knew me before HE struck. So he had a firsthand view of what I was like before and after. And that's important because when you go to a new doctor, they don't know um, your your history, you know, or how, um, oh, what, I don't even know what the word is, you know, how that goes, Um, (laughs) how intelligent you were, or, you know, how high functioning you were, you know, and then you go to a new doctor, they don't, they don't know, but your old doctor does. So he's got a really good idea how sick you really are. Yeah. Right. Right. I, um, how valuable that's been invaluable having a family doctor really that I could rely on because, um, as you know, with insurance, there can be ongoing paperwork that has to be done. And, Thankfully, he does my paperwork year after year. And, um, you know, he knows what to write down, which if I was to have to go to another doctor, well, I'm no longer going to be in that situation because my disability insurance um, is finally coming to an end. But uh, it's just trying to deal with a new doctor is it's terrifying. And, you know, uh, what an awful thing to to fear going to the doctor. But I learned to fear going to the doctor through this whole process. Oh, because I, I found out, you know, that um, it can be a, just a horrible experience if you can't properly express yourself. And the people are, I don't know, seeing doctors who know less about the condition than I do is always disturbing. So, and I find myself having to teach or educate them sometimes about the disease because, and there's that fine line you're crossing over when you're trying to tell somebody that's more educated than you information about your disease and how it needs to be treated you know, there's just that, there's that step there. You don't want to overstep your into somebody else's space. But if you know what I mean, (laughs) I sure do. I sure do. And you know what? It would be like for me as an attorney to have someone come in and say, well, I read somewhere that thus and such. And, you know, as an attorney, that's can be very annoying to hear. And I'm sure it is for doctors too. Um, But the problem is, of course, uh, with medicine, sometimes there's uh, there are new things going on, and if it's a physician that's not staying up on the the new developments, particularly with like this uh, immune neuroimmunology, for example, which is a brand new field since we got sick. Yeah, and that it field is. didn't even exist when we got sick, you and I. Yeah, so. yeah, and the neuroscientists that are being um, dual trained, I think, is so 
so important to to this disease um because it takes both (laughs) you know anyway so nick um how did this affect your family do you think you being sick um well i think um one thing that happened of course was that there's a role reversal uh, that happens. Um, you know, I was the mom of the family and my kids were, the youngest was in college when, when I got sick. Um, but the other two were already grown and out of college. And, um, so there's that role reversal. My oldest son was, um, actually living with us at the time I got sick and he's the one who ended up really watching me when my husband went off to work to try and make sure I didn't hurt myself or burn the house down accidentally just through my, again, poor judgment. Um, So, you know, being cared for by your children is kind of weird. I mean, it's good. It's wonderful. I I love that my family love me and they want to take care of me, but, but it was really hard. Um, So there was that, which was very negative from my perspective, you know, it was hard for me to like, completely change my role. And uh, of course it impacts the marriage a bit because, you know, my husband who had been an equal partner with me was now my caregiver. And that's also weird. Um, I mean, wonderful. I'm happy he did it and had continues to do it. But, um, you know, I, I have become very dependent and that's, was never me. I was always a really independent person. And, um, <clears throat> but I have kind of, I mean, I, I don't drive anymore because of, I don't want to have one of my um, stroke like seizures and drive off the road or something. So I stopped driving, made that decision myself. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm dependent. I need a ride either from my husband or one of my kids if I want to go somewhere. Um, so I guess those are kind of the role, the changes in the roles within the family are, are, I guess, the big, the big thing. I remember the one time in our groups, we did a survey, Nick, I don't know if you remember this, but we asked how many people diagnosed with HE were A personalities. Do you remember that? And almost, I do. I do remember the survey. I, I don't remember what the number was, but I remember there were a lot of us. Most of us were a personalities. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I, you know, that stress of wanting to be perfect or being um, super high achievers, you know, I swear it has something to do with the autoimmune diseases because that was just not coincidental, you know, that we yeah, I've read. I've read that uh, chronic stress is a great predictor for autoimmune diseases. So, yeah, well, that kind of proved it all when we were <laughs> doing that. Um, have you tried any type of treatments besides the steroid treatments, Nick? The only thing that I have done for my HE is are the, are the steroids. Um, you know, I've, I've got other medications that I take to treat symptoms, but they don't, they're, those are to address specific symptoms, not to address 
the uh, condition itself. Well, I know that through the years you have become um, so much better, right? I mean, you've been <laughs> such an yeah. improvement. Yes, indeed. Yes, 10 years, I mean, but, you know, it does come around. <laughs> yeah, it really, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, it used to be the conventional wisdom always was that um, with a brain injury, after a brain injury, you're going to get whatever recovery you're going to get within the first six months. Then it was two years, then it was five years. And now I think it's off the table. You know, I think they've come to acknowledge that uh, there's a whole lot more. Well, first of all, there's neuroplasticity. So we know that the brain will reorganize itself uh, to deal with damaged areas. And um, in some cases, you can get back, you know, quite a bit of function that way. Um, and then uh, then there's also just uh, um, uh, the healing process and, and it it can go on a very, very, very long time. And the emotional um, part of it, healing, I mean, because being diagnosed with a chronic rare disease can be depressing and cause a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, we didn't talk about this uh, earlier during about the, when we were talking about the initial times, but... Um, those first, uh, well, maybe I guess the first six months or a year, um, I became very depressed. I became very anxious. I went through a period of time where I was feeling suicidal oh, because okay. I lost hope for a while that I was ever going to get any better and feeling like I couldn't talk, couldn't tell people what I was experiencing. And I've always been kind of a communicator. It's been a sort of a core part of me is talking with people, exchanging ideas and losing the ability to do that. I just felt like, what's the point of living? I, I felt like I had lost who I was. I lost the, I lost the inner sense of who I was. I lost my inner voice. And um, that was devastating. I mean, it, uh, that was really, really devastating. So, I mean, you know, among, among the many impacts that this disease has had, I think probably the worst has been what it did to me emotionally during that time, because I was just in the darkest place of my entire life. So sad. I, I don't know if you experienced this part talking about that, but I remember looking into the mirror thinking I didn't recognize myself anymore. And I don't know if it was, I hadn't changed physically at that point. Well, maybe from the prednisone, but I mean, I remember looking in there and going, I don't know me anymore. I don't know who that person is. And that might've been part of that inner, like you're talking about, you know, where you just don't know anymore who you are you know, physically no. or mentally, who, who are you? You know, I, I, I have very few memories of uh, when I was at my sickest. Most of that is just lost to me. The only things I know about what happened then are notes I took that I can read now, uh, which are kind of entertaining because, <laughs> well, anyway, um, 
but I can remember being in the hospital and the university hospital. And I can remember thinking, I feel like I'm trapped in a Kafka story. So, you know, there was this author, Franz Kafka, and he wrote some stories that involve people being in otherworldly situations, like the guy that turns into a cockroach. He wakes up one day and he's a cockroach. So, but um, it was like I was in some sort of weird, horrible dream that would not end. Just went on and on. I, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I don't know if you experienced this, but one of my worst things that I remember experiencing was I had no empathy. I had no feelings about anything. I couldn't, I know I should be happy about something and I couldn't feel it in my heart or my soul, or I knew I should be sad and I couldn't feel it. That feeling that you get, um, or extreme happiness. I couldn't get that. I would act the part, but it, I didn't feel the part. I don't know if you experienced that Nick also. Yeah. And, and I also, not only did I experience that, that real severe blunting of emotions, yes. but, um, I also experienced, um, from time to time, um, just I would randomly burst out laughing or randomly burst out crying and no trigger whatsoever. I mean, I could just be sitting on the couch, looking out the window at the birds at the bird feeder and for zero reason, just begin laughing or crying. And, but yet I didn't actually have those emotional states of happiness or sadness or even anger um, not the way I do when I'm in my right mind. Um, <laughs> I just, uh, felt, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. The emotional life was very, very mixed up. I, I, and I was just in this fugue state where it was like, I couldn't find my way back to who I was. I couldn't, when you talk about looking in the mirror and not recognizing yourself, I, I can remember like thinking, was did I just dream that person that I was before? Did I dream the whole thing where I was a lawyer and uh, you know, or or is this a dream? Or I had actually, and during that time, during the early days, I had a lot of trouble sorting out the difference between dreams and reality. I could, I would have a dream and think it happened. And then I'd get up the next day and I'd be walking around thinking that whatever it was that I dreamed had actually occurred. It was just, oh, so strange. A horrible time. Such so, a, so much confusion. Just the mental confusion was just horrendous. And how do you explain that to someone? You can't. You can't. You can't. No. I mean, because in, in a way, it's like as though you are on, like you're, like the the non clarity of being very drunk. Maybe you know. I mean, just like where you can't put one thought together with another thought. I mean, that's 
being really drunk is the only experience I have in life that in any way comes close to mimicking that um, uh, that feeling that, oh my gosh, I can't walk. I can't walk a straight line. I can't, oh. you know, I can't, I can't speak. I can't anything. I used to use that as a description to my doctors as far as my balance goes. I I would say I'm I walk like a drunken sailor because yeah. I couldn't go down the steps without bouncing off the walls. Like I was bouncing off the woodworks. I I still can't walk a straight line. I mean, my balance is awful. But um yeah, it's that feeling that you just and when I'm going f- through a flare up um, a relapse. I don't know about you if you get this way too, but I, um, my brain is like a merry-go-round. I mean, there's never a complete thought, right? You go from one thing you're thinking of, you don't complete that thought, but you're into the next thought and then you're into the next thought and it just keeps repeating over and over and over. And that's so frustrating. Like you said, with, as far as concentrating, that's probably part of it. You can't concentrate when you can't complete a thought. Yeah. And even things, you know, so well, like um, I can remember um, and this still happens to me if I get a flare um, something like the Lord's Prayer, which I yes. have said daily since I was a little, little, little kid. I couldn't remember how it went. I'd get a few of the words and then I'd be suddenly saying the 23rd Psalm and then maybe some words from a hymn. And, you know, just like I couldn't could not keep anything together. Yeah, just as you talk about that just praying for me, you know, I'll get into the, I've prayed my whole life. Right. Um, and at night, especially, and, and you start saying your prayers and somewhere along the line, you're somewhere else. It's not, I think, well, God understands my intention here, but it's frustrating because you can't stay focused. Yeah. Yeah. The lack of focus, the loss of focus. And for, for many years after I got sick, I could not read really anything at, for, I couldn't read for, um, what, what's the word I want? I, I would read, but I couldn't stay focused very well. And um, gosh, I remember when we were doing the books, what a challenge it was to try and stay keep myself focused so I could do the proofreading and the editing and all that stuff. And the, the, oh my goodness, doing our, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that we did manage to do that, (laughs) even though we were all so sick. I I say that all the time. How did all of us with HE do that? How did we do it? It's astonishing, really. It uh, is. Just goes to show what uh, people who are highly motivated can do despite <laughs> their disabilities, right? Yeah, whether you're sick or not and you have no brain left, but we ended up doing it. And, you know, I we did some great accomplishments. There's no doubt about it. And 
both of us being sick. I I remember yeah. during that time I couldn't edit anything. I still have a problem with that. There's just something about going back and rereading something. I I can't. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I have no idea. Must be the part of my brain that's affected the worst, but I still can't. Well, I had um, for many years after I got sick, I had uh, I had to use like um, an electronic device to limit. So I only had about four lines of text or five lines of text visible on the page at a time because my eyes wouldn't wouldn't track left to right and then go down one line, left to right, down one line. I, I couldn't do that. So I had to resort to using a device and, you know, magnifying the text so that I only saw small parts of it at a time. And um, I know that's how I got through that is by using devices like that. Uh, what do you say? Strategies like that. Um, I, because otherwise I, I couldn't do it now. Amazingly in the last maybe two years, I can actually pick up a book. I can hold a physical book and read it um, without having to, you know, take cardboard and cover up part of the page and that kind of thing, which I, that's how I got into it was I decided, well, I'm going to see if I can, maybe if I block out part of the page, I'll be able to follow it and read, which is, you know, that's how I got to where I am now. So it's like, you know what, month by month, year by year, now after a decade, I'm doing things I didn't think I'd ever be able to do. So, And what a joy it is to read again, right? Yes, yes, yes. It's incredible. It, it's, uh, you know, and I'm going to back myself up for a minute, but um, that's one of the symptoms everybody talks about when they first get diagnosed that they can't read. Mm -hmm. That their yeah. inability to read anything because, um, you know, or they have to take things in little pair, like you're talking about little paragraphs at a time and, right. and read it. And, uh, with our memories, by the time you get done with that paragraph, you don't remember when you go on to the next one, what you just read. Yes. I have a, I have a memory of when I was at the, um, hospital at the university hospital, I remembered the one neurologist um, came into my room with a round of, you know, med students. And I had my Bible open because I was reading in the Bible. And the Bible was actually something that I could more easily read because it had the, first of all, it has the, had that Bible anyway, it had columns down, you know, divided into two columns. So I didn't, have, my eyes didn't have to move so far left and right. Plus, divided into verses, the way a Bible is, my eyes could pick out more easily and read. So he said, well, read me something from there. So I read, I don't know, a couple of verses just randomly. And, he, and then when I was done, he said, okay, so tell me about what you read there. What does it mean to you? And I said, I have no idea what I read. <laughs> Because I, you know, as fat as, as, you know, the words could come out of my mouth, but I had zero comprehension. I get it. I get it. I mean, I, when I was first diagnosed too, I remember <clears throat> reading backwards or taking a magazine and starting at the back of the magazine going forward. Yes. 
Yes. You know what? That's something that I remember discovering as a common thing among a bunch of us on the AT yes. page is that we started reading magazines backwards to the front. Why? I don't know. But I don't know. Is it was your another left, oddity? Yeah. Was your left temporal lobe, frontal lobe affected or was it your right? My left side of my brain was like silent when they did the spect. There was just like nothing happening. That was, it's my left too. That's why it makes me wonder because maybe that had something to do with it, right? I mean, because you're, maybe that's, I don't know, I can't explain it, but because so many of us, it's the left side, you know, just a few are the right that are affected. But I mean, for us to be reading that magazine left to the back to the front, because I remember it so distinctively, I'm like, Why am I doing this? It's like the only way I could read a magazine. Um, You know what? I I don't know about the only way I could do it. I just know that I kept doing it. Like I would pick up a magazine and I would start going from the back to the front. And someone pointed out to me, uh, I think it was my son, maybe. um, Gee, mom, that's a, (laughs) you're, do you realize you're starting at the back (laughs) going to the front? (laughs) And, And I think I just looked at him like, so <laughs> the pictures yeah. look the same. <laughs> well, yeah, that may have been it. You know, I was basically looking at the pictures mostly anyway. <laughs> was kind of out of it. But there was a bunch of us that did the same thing with the brain damage that we had. So yeah, yeah. And a number of oddities that we found by through that. Um, particularly through the uh, online community, just sort of comparing notes and finding these just peculiar things that just are so weird. Oh, well. I haven't thought of that for a long time, but yeah, that was one of them. I just remember that so well that, because I remember thinking, oh my God, I do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, We've been fortunate to have each other. That's for sure. Um, have you had any permanent damage done? Do you think, Nick? Um, well, my neurologist seems to think I have. Um, she's, you know, uh, but nothing that shows on an MRI or not the last time I had one done. Um, so, and yet, there's permanent, there are certain permanent impairments. A lot of function has come back. I mean, you can hear I'm talking like a normal person. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I haven't talked to you for a while, but I am impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's really nice to be able to, you know, carry on a conversation. Of course, I'm having a very good day today and I took a nap while you were doing your prior interview. So uh, you're catching me uh, wide awake, well rested. I do find that one of the things that's most important for me is don't allow myself to get overtired. Because if I get overtired, it could take me quite a while to get come back from that. So I do lie down every day in the middle of the day. I, you know, I just um, make it a point to never ever allow myself to get overtired because many, that's just a kiss of death. How many hours of sleep do you need a day, Nick? Um, 
you think to feel decent? Nowadays, mm-hmm. I usually sleep around uh, two hours in the midday and then about seven or eight hours at night. So probably total, I sleep about 10 hours a day, which is a lot more than I used to sleep. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think before I got sick, I probably didn't sleep five, six hours a night. I mean, you know, my brain never stopped. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I, I did not sleep like that back before I got sick. Do you ever have days now where uh, you feel like you hit a brick wall and you have to just go to bed? It doesn't matter yes. what time it is. Yep. 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 I absolutely do. And I try to respect that. And I try not to, well, I mean, one of the things about having this illness makes it very hard to make plans to do anything uh, because I never know, is it going to be a good day or a bad day? Is it going to be a day where I have some energy or is it going to be one of those days where I can barely get out of bed? Um, But, you know, most days I'm, I'm pretty good, but then you never know when the curveball will come across the plate. So I, I went out on a limb and bought concert tickets. So we we're actually going to a concert oh, later this month, uh, which should be interesting. And uh, <laughs> knock on wood, uh, it'll be a good day. And I'll have a long nap in the midday so that I can go to this concert without it putting me back Oh, that's so exciting. I'm happy for you. I'm very Thanks. happy for you. I, you. I, that's another thing with people with this chronic illness is, is that they can't make plans. You can't. Right. You don't know from day to day how you're going to feel. Um, you can't work a, a job. I, at least I know that I couldn't work a job outside the house, even if it was for two hours a day, because I don't know how I'm going to be from one minute to the next. I can change. I can feel fine right now. And then five minutes from now, not. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, that extreme unpredictability does make life hard. Um, You know, we can get in the car and drive over to Menards to the, you know, look at something for the house and, uh, I'm fine when we leave the house, but 10 minutes later when we get there, I'm too shaking, too shaky to get out of the car. So, and worse, worse for me really is just, uh, we've got a son that lives overseas and uh, we did travel to see him in 2018, um, but the trip took a lot out of me and I was um, sick for a substantial part of the trip. And, uh, I, of course, we haven't been back since because of the pandemic. I, and I want to go. I want to see him again. But any kind of a international travel for me is um, it's, it's a roll of the dice. I got to buy travel insurance because what if I'm too sick when the time comes? And then I always fear what will happen if I get sick while I'm over there. But you know, if I have a relapse while I'm there, but you know, that's, that is in many ways, that is the worst thing about this disease. And I suppose any chronic 
disease that's disabling, um, that's a relapsing remitting disease. I often tell people when I'm trying to explain my situation, I often tell them it's similar to MS because a lot of people have had some exposure to MS and they recognize, they know that, oh, well, someone with MS, one day they're fine, the next day, not at all. And um, of course, that's how it is with this disease too. And the balance issues with MS and HE. I mean, a lot of times I can feel okay sitting here. I'm fine. I get up to walk and there's no balance. And that's scary. It's scary to go anywhere. I mean, because you're not sure, you know, how it's going to (laughs) be. Yes, yes, indeed. Nick, if you were going to, in your own words, give some words of wisdom (laughs) to people that might be trying to get a diagnosis or have gotten a diagnosis and are new to this whole scene, what would you tell them? Um, Let's see, I guess I would say a couple of things. First of all, um, do your best to never give up hope because uh, some of us do really well. Some of us get pretty much back to the way they were before they got sick. I know a woman who was an engineer. She got HG. She was unable to work for several years, but she eventually went back to work. She eventually had a, another child. Yes, I know who you're talking so, about. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, there are people that do really well. And, and some of us do really well most of the time and only have trouble once in a while. Some of us have kind of permanent losses. I'm in that camp. But even if you end up having some permanent losses, you can still make a lot of progress long past the time you might expect. Some of my greatest progress has been in the last couple of years and I have was diagnosed now 11 years ago. So, just don't ever give up hope. That's um, there's there's so many changes out there. There's research ongoing. There are we've got neuroimmunology as a specialty now. So and and many people interested in this um, this group of diseases, the autoimmune encephalitis group. Um, and so, I, you know, I think uh, that is the main thing I would say is just don't lose hope. And also the other thing is, um, for me, I had to change my focus when I when it became apparent I was not going to practice law again. Um, and I was able then to turn my attention to other things, different endeavors. Um, I have a granddaughter who is now nine and a half. So she came along, you know, not too long after I got sick. And I have been able to devote so much time and attention to her, which I never would have been able to do if I was still working. So, you know, remember that life can change and new things can come along. And if you remain open to them, and if you remain open to focusing your attention in new areas, um, that can be a very helpful thing. Try new things, you know, I mean, try things you haven't tried before. I've started painting pictures. Oh, good for you. 
Um, I've done, I think, maybe five now. And it's not something I did before, not since high school. And, uh, and it's fun and I really enjoy it. Um, so, you know, you can find new things, um, but you got to give yourself permission to do it and try your best not to wallow in the sadness of what you've lost. And of course we, you know, it's a grief like any other. So you also have to be patient with the grief process because just like losing a person, you lose kind of a part of yourself with this disease. You do. You do. And uh, you got to give yourself time to grieve and you got to understand that the grief process is not linear. It doesn't go kind of this way, this way, this way, this step, then this step, then this step, then this step. It's back and forth and up and down and in and out. And it's this thing is bothering you. Then that thing is bothering you. But, you know, it gets better. It does. And I, I, you and I have talked about this, too, that um, I think people need a sense of a purpose, too, um, a reason to get up in the morning and a reason to keep trying to get better. Um, you and I both um, starting HESA together was a great purpose for me. I know it kept me going and it kept me focused on something different besides myself. And um, I think that we both should be very happy what we have done um, with the nonprofit and that um, I feel we've helped a lot of people, uh, especially with the books. And um, yeah, that was my purpose and that was my focus. And uh, it's been healing for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. The finding a purpose is so important. And you know, your purpose may be nothing you know, you may need to start small if you're really limited, you know, maybe your purpose is you're going to feed the birds in your yard and that's going to be your purpose, you know, or you're going to find one thing you can do that makes you feel better um, and do that thing, you know. Um, Like I I always say, even if you knit and you are crochet, if you crochet blankets for the hospital or you crochet hats for the cancer ward, um, make you feel good about yourself again. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, Absolutely. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so too. I think that, uh, yeah, that idea of finding purpose, I think um, starting the organization uh, with you and doing the books is probably what pulled me out of my, a terrible downward spiral emotionally after I was sick when I was feeling so hopeless. And then I met you and and I started thinking, well, wait a minute, you know what? Maybe, maybe I can make, maybe I can figure out how to make some lemonade with these lemons. Exactly. I remember you saying when one door closes, another one opens. Yeah. I remember you using that phrase. And I think we both used that door for a long time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I do, I, I so enjoy this stopping by the, the uh, Facebook page, seeing what people in the community are saying, seeing, or pages, I guess, because we got more than one, but 
you know, seeing what uh, what people are posting and what people are thinking about. And sometimes I think it's enough just to go online and make a positive response to some, you know, somebody makes a post and they say, I'm going through this really hard thing today. Well, you can make a positive post back and say, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Um, hang in there. I'll be thinking of you. Just, you know, giving encouragement to other people is such a a um, good way to not get bogged down in the sadness of what you've lost. Well, I think you and I both remember how we felt. And when we found a group that we could talk to other people, this is before we did our own thing. Um, it was so important. I mean, that was such a, a lifeline, right? To talk to yes. these people and find out that, they felt the same, you know, otherwise you start to think that you're the only one experiencing these things, you know, so it's a lifeline. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nick, I just want to say thank you so much for sitting down this afternoon and talking to me and uh, your journey to your diagnosis and your life for the last 11 years, it's going to encourage many others. I know that. And I really appreciate it. And you know, I love you. <laughs> oh, I love you too. And thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad that you're taking the effort, taking the time and the energy. And, and I know Maddie is a big part of this too. And just getting this out there for people, because indeed, uh, knowing you're not alone can make such a difference. And we aren't alone. Don't we wish we would have had this? When we were diagnosed. Well, and that's why we did it, right? Because we didn't want anyone else to have to go through this long, lonely road all alone. So exactly. Well, thanks, Nick. And uh, I will talk to you later. Sounds good. Bye bye now. For more information on Hashimoto's encephalopathy, autoimmune encephalitis, or HESA, visit our website at www.hesaonline.info.